I want to invite you now, you can do me a favor and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 27, or 21, excuse me, 21, verses 17 through 26 is where we will be looking tonight, continuing along with our series through the book of Acts, which is often called, of course, the Acts of the Apostles, but it's really more truly the Act of the Holy Spirit all the way through. And so last week, uh, in Mark's sermon, which was titled Moving Towards Danger, just to kind of get a little bit of the backstory, uh, Paul was making his way to the city of Jerusalem. And along the way, many people had been telling him, Paul, you probably shouldn't do this. There's going to be many difficult things that happen to you. And there was even the very emotional prophecy from a man named Agabus, who through a dramatized prophecy, told Paul, you are going to be bound, and this will not be a good time for you. And so they warned him not to go, but of course, Paul, knowing full well what he was getting himself into, he went. And those three lessons that Mark shared with us are important, and they are good to reflect on and remember as we get into tonight's text. So he shared three lessons with us. The first was that some cities, like Jerusalem, rightly have reputations for being antagonistic towards the gospel. The second lesson was that Paul followed the Spirit's lead and disregarded the emotional appeals of his friends. So he followed the Spirit, not his friends and their emotions. And third, that God sometimes requires us to do hard things. To, in Paul's case, go to hard places, places where we know will be difficult for us. And so all of this helps us to remind us about what we read tonight and to get the whole plot of the book as Acts is sort of, the plot is thickening, it's getting more intense, it's sort of leading towards the climax, you might say. It's picking up steam. And as we'll see, there's a certain sense of anxiety amongst the church in Jerusalem, the people who were in Jerusalem, about what would happen. You, you might say the city was sort of like a powder keg at this point in time. And they, the people who were there, the Christians located there, and many of them had been scattered, but there were still some there. They knew that Paul may just be the spark to light this whole thing on fire. And so there was a great sort of fear upon them, as we'll see. Uh, people had been had been forced to leave. We know after Stephen's martyrdom back in Acts chapter 7 that after he was killed, many Christians fled for the Gentile lands surrounding. This is what was known as a diaspora or dispersion, a fleeing, a scattering of seed. And though they did this out of fear, just out of fear of persecution, we can see God's hand in this planting seed all throughout the Greco-Roman Empire. And so, we will want to come and read what Paul or what Luke has said for us about Paul's journeys heading into this city of Jerusalem. What happens next? There's this pressure building up, and so we're going to read of Paul's reception. We will see next week what really happens once Paul is recognized. You can kind of make a mental note. People didn't have cameras back then, so they didn't have photos of Paul, wanted photos posted around the city. In case you see this guy, that's not how it was. Nobody really knew exactly what he looked like unless they knew Paul. And so Paul was able for the first few days 
to make it around without being noticed. And so we're going to read of his reception and what happens when he arrives in the city. So we'll pray and then we'll read. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask now that as we return to this story of our church's story, which you have planted and established thousands of years ago, Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand it, to learn from it for our own day, that we may be faithful and may continue scattering seed around our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God from Acts twenty-one seventeen through 26. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, They glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what we have or what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in the passage we've just read, what we find is an episode that we may call the beginning of the end of Acts. In the first 20 or so chapters of the book up to this point, we've seen the incredible spread of the gospel take place, starting from right here in the city of Jerusalem, out to the Roman Empire, and now Paul is coming back. And it's been all along the way empowered by the Holy Spirit. That was, of course, Christ's command at the beginning of the book of Acts to preach the gospel and the power of the Spirit, both here in Jerusalem and in Judea, the region, Samaria, the neighboring region, and to the ends of the earth. And so we might say in this sense, the story started out small, and then it has expanded, just as Jesus said it would, But now here in Acts 21, it begins to contract once again. It begins to narrow. The narrative focuses now on a a few events that take place over not so long of a time. 
up to this point, the book of Acts has covered many, many years, decades even, of the church's history and the spread of the gospel. But now for the next several chapters, it's really going to be following into one story, Paul's trial. And he will go from place to place as he's put on trial, and he'll eventually land in Rome. All the while, one of the big questions which pervades the book, one of the main tensions driving the story up to this point, is this. How can the intractable differences and animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles possibly be reconciled? These are people who have a history together. If you know the history between the Testaments, between Old and New Testament, you will know that there were lots of reasons that gave Jews a deep-seated anger, even a hatred, a disgust for Gentiles. And so it was really difficult for that racial issue to be worked out. Now this church has been made, and how are these two supposed to come together? The answer, of course, is that this is only possible through the gospel, which Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 calls the mystery of Christ. And he tells us this, that it is the, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And while we have the benefit of reading and knowing Paul's insight into this, this mystery now revealed by God, in Paul's own lifetime, people were still having to come to grips with this idea. They didn't have the privilege that we have. And so as we have just read, there was a great deal of misinformation about what exactly Paul's mission to the Gentiles was looking like. People had all sorts of ideas about what he was up to and what he was telling the Jews who had been scattered to different parts of the region. And they were beginning to tell slander and rumors and lies about him. And so we see this, for example, in verse 22 in our, in our Bibles, where the brothers tell Paul, they, that is the Jews living in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians there, they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. So back in Acts 15, which we looked at several months ago, we encountered the story of the Jerusalem Council, where it was definitively decided that Jews would not need to receive the covenant sign of circumcision. Uh, They would not need to follow ceremonial law of the Old Testament in order to become Christians. And so essentially what was said at that council was that Gentiles do not need to become Jewish to become Christians. They can remain Gentiles. They can be Gentiles. They do not need to enter into the Jewish covenant before they can enter into the Christian faith. That was the distinction. So as Paul would go on to say, for example, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. We don't have to become Jewish. We can stay Greek and still be one in one body because of Christ. So in effect then, there was an implicit recognition in the council's decision that Jewish customs and practices originating in the old covenant were no longer obligatory or necessary for those who are part of the new covenant in Christ's blood. 
And this principle undergirds all of Paul's teaching regarding justification, a doctrine we as Protestants love to talk about, and rightly so. He tells us many times throughout his epistles that it's not by our works, it's not by works of the law, by following the Old Covenant ceremonial law, but it is by faith alone, by grace alone. And so back here in Acts 21, then, We are given a beautiful example of how this tension was handled by Paul uh, and and the leadership of the early church. They were sort of on this balancing act. How do we help the people to see that Jews and Gentiles can become one? And so if we're going to glean the most from this story for our present context, of course, we'll need to work our way through it. So we'll start with verses 17 through 20. The first thing we ought to notice here is that Paul and his companions were received gladly or warmly. There was an excitement amongst the Christian brothers in Jerusalem when Paul and some of his Gentile converts who were with him when they arrived. Knowing the kind of stress and anxiety they must have felt, knowing what their visit would surely entail, thanks to the dramatic prophecy, of course, of Agabus, which we mentioned earlier, A glad reception would have surely been a great encouragement and a strengthening for the men who arrived now in Jerusalem. And so in times of particular struggle and cultural displacement, we might say this is our first lesson, there are few better and more important gifts from the Lord than the gift of Christian hospitality. What a warm reception this must have been and how encouraging that must have been, knowing what they are about to go and do. They're about to go into this city which was just waiting for that spark and for things to go haywire. And that while there are, of course, many who have sadly never quite felt this love and this warmth of fellowship, and this is to the church's shame, those of us who have known it can surely attest to the strengthening and the encouragement of Christian fellowship to how this forms us and how this changes us as people. Those of you who, have, who are sitting here likely know this. You, you've been in this church or other churches in our town blessed by many years of close fellowship. Let's enjoy it, but we should also remember how can we be hospitable to those who are outsiders coming in to where we are It's important that we, like the Jewish brethren living in Jerusalem, remember that hospitality is a crucial aspect of our life together. Again, just imagine how great it must have been to have been hugged, maybe even kissed. There was often Christian kissing in the in the ancient days, we know. Greet one another, Paul says, uh, with a holy kiss. Uh, that's something many youth group students are often a little bit weirded out by. But that was how they would greet. There would be a warm reception. They would have a warm meal ready for them. They would grab their bags and help them find their way to their room and say, here's a nice bed for you to sleep in. Just imagine how how calming that must have been, how, how great that must have been, knowing what was happening. Given the gravity of the situation, this display of Christian love would have no doubt encouraged these weary travelers. But this wasn't all, of course. And in verse 19, we're told that on the next day, James and the other hosts, the elders there, the leaders of the church, listened to Paul as Paul gave his report. We read there that he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. 
and that when they heard it, they glorified God. This celebration was important, of course, because it signaled their support and recognition of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. And thus, this was to be seen as proof positive that while they had chosen to remain in Jerusalem and minister to Jewish Christians, that they were nevertheless still open to and even enthusiastic about Gentiles now coming into this community called the church. And another bit of evidence along the same lines is that some of Paul's entourage, again, remembering who's with him, are Gentile Christians now. And this is a pretty big deal because it would have been sort of unclean for a Gentile to come into a Jew's home and to be received so gladly as a guest. And so it's important to see that they are in full support of Paul and what he is doing. They are, you might say, in full alignment with the council's decision back in Acts chapter 15, that Gentiles are allowed to be in the church without becoming Jews. Nevertheless, these church leaders, however, in Jerusalem, they weren't blind to the seriousness of what was going on. They knew Paul's arrival in the city was going to be tense, surely. And so, and they knew this because they were, they were well aware and well versed. They had heard sort of the propaganda and misinformation that had been being spread around in Jerusalem. And so, as we can see in verse 20, they tell them exactly what they know. Uh, whereas Paul began his visit, sort of giving his report, now they begin to report to him what's going on in Jerusalem. And so they say in verse 20, You see, brothers, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And this was great news, of course, but it presented its own obstacles, which we see as they continue. Uh, they, that is, these, all these Christians, these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles, again, those Jews in the diaspora, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. And so they've told him what the misinformation is. What they're saying is that essentially uh, Paul's missionary efforts were fruitful among, while while Paul's efforts were fruitful amongst the Gentiles, they're saying our efforts have been fruitful here. There's many thousands. Even despite the persecution that we're facing, there's many thousands who are becoming Christians. And this is great news, of course, uh, given the difficulty that they were under uh, in the city. So many Jews had heard the gospel and actually perceived the way in which the Christian faith was not actually a a deviation away from Judaism, but was actually the fulfillment of Judaism. And what's interesting is that they note that these Jewish Christians were made all the more zealous for their Jewish laws. They were made all the more excited to take to them and to be devout Jewish Christians. This is really interesting. And in this way, we ought to take note of an important principle then. That many Jewish religious customs and observances, while not necessary to being grafted into Christ's covenant community, were nevertheless still acceptable for people to practice. And so on this point, a reformed Bible scholar by the name of Alistair Roberts, he draws a helpful parallel 
between these Jewish Christians observing these traditional Jewish customs and rituals and practices on the one hand, and maybe what we could think of as medieval monastic uh, Christians who had taken special vows to uh, follow different rhythms and set forms of daily worship and devotion on the other. as long as it's not said that you have to do these things to become to be a true Christian or to be a true Jew, uh, then it's okay to practice a set form of devotion, so long as you're not mandating that everybody else do it just like you. And I think that that's interesting. We, we have to see that these practices of the Jews, they were allowed to continue doing them, many of them, but they were not allowed to force... Gentiles to do them, to be a part of the community, not in order to be saved. These practices were not how they would become saved, but they w- we could see them as a, an expression now of their obedience and devotion to the Lord. Nevertheless, as the elders make clear, these zealous Jewish Christians had been hearing that Paul and his companions were teaching false things, that they were teaching all the Jews of the Greco-Roman world that they can totally give up and abandon all of their Jewishness, and such that they can just walk away from it and stop having anything to do uh, with their heritage, with their practices, their traditions. And so you can see in all of this that these zealous Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, zealous though they were, they still lacked an immaturity, still thinking that uh, it was such a bad thing if people began to go away from the law. And so knowing that this misinformation could likely uh, spread and can likely get things out of control, more unrest and division could happen if Paul was spotted, as we've already seen. The elders give Paul a plan. They say, here's what we're going to have you do. Here's what we, we suggest for you. And we find this in verses 23 through 24, where they essentially tell him that they have four men, these would be four Jewish Christians, who are under a vow uh, Presumably, the best guess would be a, what's called a Nazarite vow, which comes from the book of Numbers. Uh, it was something that somebody would voluntarily choose to do for a set amount of time in order to worship the Lord and to consecrate themselves to him, often for a particular reason personal to them. Uh, and that they wanted Paul to join with these men then, and, and for the remaining part of their vow, which was about a week, and to pay their expenses and to join with them in the purification rituals that were entailed in this vow. All in order, the point of this was to publicly repudiate and show people that Paul is not totally against Jewish customs and practices and observances. Paul is not against the Old Testament law, and he's not trying to start a totally new religion. Paul then is wanting to... uh, show people that the Christian faith is not a rejection of Judaism, but a fulfillment of Judaism. And so finally, the important part, without grumbling or mumbling, Paul, he complies. And so we're told in verse 26, Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. And so it's here in the temple where next week we'll see the response. He gets caught. They they recognize him. But for now, we shouldn't skip over what we've just read, what has just taken place. This is a pretty big deal, actually, in the book of Acts. It shows us an important 
part of the, the solidarity that Jews and Gentiles could have together. So Paul the Apostle, the one who has been called to go to the Gentiles, and whose traveling companions even included Gentiles who were with him, he humbly goes to the temple, he purifies himself, possibly for the reason for him, he would possibly have to, to purify himself because he was with Gentiles. He'd been in Gentile regions, and now he'd come back to Jerusalem. So a lot of scholars suggest that that's probably why he had to purify himself. And he even pays their expensive fees. It would have been a great sum of money for him to cover their fees. And he purifies himself, and he, can, he includes himself in the final days of their vow. In short, he has happily abided by the Jewish law, and he has publicly shown that he uh, is willing to participate in such a ceremony. And so he's signaled then to the overly scrupulous and judgmental, you might even say, Jewish Christians in the city, that faithfulness to the Lord, far from being opposed to his law, is actually in step with it. it instead of being against the law of Moses, Paul is now showing that faith in Christ grounds our obedience to his law. Pastor and Bible scholar John Stott helpfully summarizes what's happening like this, and I think he words it well. He says, Paul was certainly ready to live in obedience to the law on special occasions for the sake of evangelism, for example, or, as here, for the sake of Jewish-Gentile solidarity. According to his conviction, Jewish cultural practices belong to the matters indifferent from which he had been liberated, but which he might or might not practice according to the circumstances. This nuanced and balanced approach, based on wisdom and prudence and on a keen awareness of what the situation requires for the mission, is exactly what Paul himself teaches in a well-known passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verses 20, or 19 through 23. You can see this on the screen behind me. This will sound familiar to you. And this is exactly what we've just seen in Acts 21. So Paul writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I, be- I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And so as we draw things to a close, I want to finish up by observing two important lessons from what we've just read. The first one we could say is this, how we use our freedom in Christ, freedom from those customs and practices of the Jewish law, how we use this freedom matters. We must use it, and sometimes, as Paul has done, we must choose freely to forgo it. Interesting. I hope you note that, that wordplay I've tried to give it. Uh, we must choose freely to forgo our freedom 
for the good of others. That is how Christians think about their freedom. Our freedom is not for ourselves, but our freedom is for God and for those who he has called us to love. Paul says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Though Paul knew he was under no obligation to observe the customs and practices of the Jewish ceremonial law, as we have seen in tonight's text, he was more than happy to give up his freedom in order to associate himself with those who struggled to accept their freedom in Christ. I love how another Bible commentator by the name of F.F. Bruce, a great 20th century uh, scholar, he writes this, a truly emancipated or freed spirit such as Paul is not in bondage to his own emancipation. I'll read that again. A truly emancipated spirit such as Paul is not in bondage to his own emancipation. Just because Paul was free from the law, now that he was in Christ, he was more than happy to freely choose to adhere to it nonetheless. And thus he was not a slave to his own freedom. A truly free man, should he choose, is more than free to choose to live as a slave in order to redeem slaves, in order to free more slaves. This whole concept is closely connected, of course, with Paul's teaching throughout the rest of his epistles. We find for a, a big example would be Romans chapter 14, where Paul talks about uh, giving up your freedoms for the sake of the weaker brother. The weaker brother who has conscience, conscience scruples where he can't get over certain issues and he thinks what you're doing is a problem. Paul says sometimes you may need to defer to the weaker brother in order to not cause him then to go against his own conscience. So use your freedom to help those who don't realize and understand their freedom quite the same way yet. That is a consistent idea with what he has done here in Acts chapter 21. So this beautiful and balanced approach to disagreements is for me, I think, one of the proofs, one of the one of the great proofs, one of thousands, millions of proofs of God's existence and of this, this, this sublime teaching which helps people to live in tension amid disagreements, I think just to me, it makes me think, no one could have come up with this for ways for such divided, hateful, sinful people to live together in a common family unless there were really helpful ways for them to interact and to love and to defer one another to one another in love. And I see that here in, in Paul's use of his freedom. Use your freedom for the good of others. Defer. Like Christ, pick up your cross for the sake of others. This is how Christians interact with one another. We do so because we think that this is the only pathway to mutual joy and flourishing and hope for all people. So that's the first lesson. And the second is this, Christians must strive uncompromisingly to become all things to all people. Because Paul knew he was free in Christ, he knew that he should want to reach the Gentiles as well, uh, or, excuse me, he knew uh, should he want to reach the Gentiles, he was well within his rights to drop 
his practices and customs that which would have distinguished him as a Jew in their midst. So if he's going to be amongst Gentile people, Paul was happy to give up on certain maybe Jewish dress or ways that would have clearly distinguished him immediately and made him distinguishable and recognizable as a Jew. He was more than free to say, I don't have to do those things in order to get to know the Gentiles, to freely uh, associate with them. And to, to become all things to them. He was still required, of course, to follow what he calls the law of Christ. But he was under no obligation, one way or the other, to the law of Moses, the ceremonial law. He was, of course, under obligation, as are we, to the moral law, the Ten Commandments and things like that. But we are no, under no obligation to ceremonial Jewish law. Conversely, then, we know that Paul could also freely and for the sake of the mission practice certain Jewish things in order to bypass their scruples and to confront them with the freedom of the gospel. That's what he was able to do here in Acts chapter 21. And I think this is clearly seen in 1 Corinthians 9 and also uh, clearly understood by us. It's an easy enough concept to, to realize we've got we to become all things to all people. We have to learn to uh, relate to people, learn to speak to them on their own terms, speak to them in a language, maybe even a dialect or a, a tone or slang that they may understand. This is a a concept many of us understand we know well. When we think of missions to the world, we think of missionaries learning a language, learning customs, learning practices so that they may go and preach the gospel to them. But I think that this is also an area where Christians can get tripped up. And so I've put this word here, and you'll see in the bold italics, uncompromisingly. We must become all things to all people uncompromisingly. To understand this, I think it's simple or simply helpful to say that this is that this idea of becoming all things to all people is not evangelism. We have not succeeded in preaching the gospel to people when we've become all things to them. We might say better that becoming all things to all people is pre-evangelism. It's part of our preparation to evangelize to them. And so being seen by those who are want to, wanting to reach as cool or smart or hip or compassionate is not the goal. And I would suggest that when such outcomes are the goal, the gospel we preach will fail to reach anyone. Because by that point, the gospel that we claim to preach will become so shunted, so deformed, so defanged that it will fail to be the gospel. It will be battered and bruised and will only be more of a pat on the back. We want to be just like you. That's what a lot of Christianity, I think, does today, where it fails. And becoming all things to all people, it ceases to be under the law of Christ. And so in order to be all things to all people well, the key for us is to remember where our true allegiance lies, what our true goal is. It's to Christ, and it's his kingdom, and it's not for ourselves, not for our own love or acceptance amongst the world. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.21, to those outside of the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, he adds, but under the law of Christ. So who was Paul under? He's under 
Christ. He's not under himself. He's not trying to go out there and be cool and loved and hip and fashionable. Paul is trying to go and to preach the name of Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, if we're going to faithfully live as witnesses of Christ, we will need to learn how to adapt to the various contexts and the cultures that we find and encounter every day in our lives. We will need to learn how to develop an understanding. We will need to learn how to develop an appreciation or a literacy with the different kinds of subcultures even that we encounter. If you go to the grocery store, you will bump into people that look very different. That is our world. Some will look like you. Some will talk like you. Some will look very different than you. Some will dress very differently than you. Some will even speak differently than you. We need to learn to develop and to try insofar as we're able, and we're not called uh, to be perfect evangelists, but we are called to learn to adapt as we can to different people's needs so that we can hospitably love them and preach the gospel to them in a way that they can grasp. Whether these are Indian people or Mexican people or white people or people who claim to be of different voting blocks than we do, people who think differently than we do, people who send their students to public school or home school or Christian school, whatever it may be, we may need to learn to become flexible, to become all things to all people, all the while remembering that we are under the lordship of Christ. We preach for the sake of his gospel and not our own glory. Amen? Let's pray.